Dakota and came down here to because you've got a son who's graduating. Joseph's graduating from like diving school. I haven't seen Dinah in a long, long time. Her son who's graduating from diving school, I did like a some an adoption type thingy a long, long, long time ago for that young man. And yeah, it's just a delight to see them. They're wonderful people. I met her through Keith Green's Last Days Ministries, if if you all remember that, a long time ago. And and uh, she just I looked that's Dinah. Uh, so anyway, hi Dinah. This is my family. <laughs> and today, yeah, today we're talking about Muhammad. Um, uh, if you do not have a lesson, raise your hand. We've got plenty of lessons. We need some down here for Gary and Alan and some others. If, okay, Gary's daughter had one, pulling it through. Um, we've probably got some extras from last week. I'm not sure that we do. If not, uh, they'll be on the website shortly, and you can certainly get on the website and download them. Uh, uh, okay, we've got Stacy's got some extra lessons. If you need one, just raise a hand. And uh, uh, over there, Dr. John and... And a few others. While they're doing that, let me see. Did I have another? Did we talk about Lewis? I wasn't paying attention when you did announcements. Um, <laughs> Tuesday is election day. Uh, uh, we've got a chance to uh, vote. I, I early voted uh, on Friday, and the line was like massively long. But uh, I sat there, and I knew I was going to be out of town on Tuesday, and I thought, oh. 45-minute wait, I don't have time, I'm running late. Uh, my one vote doesn't really make a difference. Uh, but i got to tell you, it makes a difference to me. It makes a difference in whether I'm a steward over what I've been given by God. I'm not here to tell you how to vote, but I am here to encourage you to vote. It's the beauty of our country. And so uh, uh, I'm sure... <laughs> Our elected officials would join. Oh, that's the beauty of our country, too. Um, let's see. Y'all want to know my password? Let's see if we can get through this now. Take two. That's a sign it's time to get on with lesson. Quick review of last week, and we'll move through it pretty quickly. Uh, the Muslim world is full of folks who have all different extremes of, uh, of, of who they are. Uh, we talked about Hakeem Olajuwon, one of the nicest, most peace-loving people I've ever met. You contrast him to someone like Osama bin Laden, who seems to feed upon uh, what I would consider uh, uh, evil, uh, who seems to feed upon uh, uh, hurt and, and anger and, and uh, destruction. And yet these both claim the same faith. Uh, you consider uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, who just this week was assessed the death penalty because of his role in the murder of hundreds of Shiite Muslims. Uh, Saddam Hussein claims to be a Sunni Muslim. And you wonder what's going on. And those of us who are not Muslims uh, uh, kind of have a, a step back. And, and it's almost like uh, uh, we, we, don't, we don't have a good clue in some ways what the Muslim faith stands for. Uh, what uh, we did last week is we looked at Muhammad himself from a historical perspective. We tried to put him into the context of what came before him, and we tried to look at what came after him. Our goal this week, having understood who Muhammad is, is to compare the, the details of the Islamic faith, of the Muslim faith, 
compare those to some of the same basic tenets of Christianity. And so that's our goal. As we do that, though, I want to remind you of something about Muhammad himself, an aspect of his life. Muhammad lived the life of a caravan leader. Uh, Muhammad, in the process of living that life, though, encountered a number of different people. For example, as a young child, Muhammad encountered a Nestorian monk. If you've been in our class where we studied Nestorius, he, Nestorius was the, the Constantinople archbishop who was exiled from, from uh, the Roman Empire, if you will. Uh, uh, and in the process of being exiled as a heretic, he and other followers of him went out outside the empire, went into lands like the Arabian Peninsula where Muhammad was. Naturally, these people didn't abandon their Christian faith just because they had been labeled a heretic. Instead, they took the faith that they had and took it into the exiled lands. Um, it's a little bit like... Uh, I'm sure all of y'all have seen Judge Dredd a few times, the movie. Okay, well, maybe I need to come up with another illustration. But if you saw Judge Dredd, you know, once you got outside the city, that it... Okay, that's losing it. Anyway, I, I'm still fascinated by the idea of what would have happened if instead of Muhammad encountering a Christian heretic to learn about Jesus... What if instead he contacted someone like the gentleman we had preaching this morning who knew Jesus and knew how to share Jesus right? It's a, it's, it, it would be a totally different world. Um, meanwhile, we have the world that we have, and within God's province, we, we uh, are thankful for where we are, but also the direction where God's leading. So remember, though, as we look at the lesson and we start comparing what Islam teaches, that Muhammad had serious encounters not only with Nestorian monk, but he had encounters with other Christians that were Orthodox. He also had encounters with Jews, a number of encounters with different Jews. There were a lot of Jews that had settled in that part of the world. And uh, you will see this is you unfold what Muhammad taught as far as his Islamic religion. Muhammad claims that he was on Mount Hira when he received a divine visitation. And as Muhammad's story is recorded for us, Muhammad wasn't sure when he received the visitation if, in fact, it was divine. In fact, the first three times Muhammad receives the visitation, he thinks perhaps it's demonic. It's Muhammad's wife who convinces Muhammad that it must be from God and that Muhammad should listen and recite his visions. Muhammad was not a schooled man. So Muhammad doesn't sit down and write these things. Muhammad would recite what messages he got in his times of meditation. This is what ultimately becomes the Quran. Muhammad makes a determination that he's being visited by the angel Gabriel. And so the angel Gabriel is who's telling Muhammad these things that are the words of God that Muhammad would recite and ultimately would be written down in the Quran. That forms the basis of Islam. And I worked so hard to color these maps, I'm throwing one up one more time. This is uh, uh, within the next uh, 65 years of Muhammad's death. Islam spreads throughout 
Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, uh, into modern-day Iran and Iraq, and modern-day Spain. The Roman Empire, uh, at this point the Byzantine Empire, you might want to call it, or the later Roman Empire, scholars call it, has shrunk down to, to very little. Uh, Turkey, Greece, and a little bit north into uh, what was Yugoslavia when I was in school, and I don't know what countries they call them now. Islam itself has five basic pillars of, uh, of uh, practice that you should try and adhere to. We talked about these last week. I want to put them up here briefly, but then we're going to get into some more details. The first is a profession of faith. The second is our prayer rituals. We'll go into details on both of those. The third is a payment of a charity. Originally, it was considered a tax, but the Arabic word for tax is, is like the Arabic word for punishment. And people weren't real into it, so they changed it and called it a mandatory charity. I don't know if that would work. Debbie Riddle's one of our uh, uh, state reps. Uh, Patricia Harless may be one of our state reps. And uh, she's up for election on Tuesday. But uh, I don't know if that would help in Austin if, if instead of calling it like a tax increase, y'all called it a mandatory charity increase, but it worked for the Muslim world. Um, there's a payment of a charity. Uh, there's fasting that takes place. And then there's the pilgrimage that each person's supposed to make once in their life to Mecca. And uh, you get an exemption from that if you're poor or if travel is not available for you. Now, those are the five pillars of Islam, and I can't do it justice without it, but I want to move on to class today. And I want to tell you where I get a lot of my materials from. Um, I tried to look at, let's see which one, Phillips. Oh, that's just a delightful color. Um, did that help? No. Uh, let's see, automatic focus. That's yeah, not too hot either. Well, this is a book called Know Your Islam, and it doesn't look at all like it looks up on the screen. But uh, it's a book by a fellow named Yosuf Laji. Okay? And this fellow is, uh, he's writing this for you if you're a Muslim. This is kind of like a, a discipleship book. This is like, uh, um, and, and it's one that's, that's most common, not most, it's extremely commonly used in the Muslim world to help people grow in their faith. It's got exercises. It's got fill-in-the-blanks. It's got all sorts of indexes and things. And so a lot of the teachings that I'm going to give you today about Islam are not what Christians say about Muslims. Okay? It's what the Muslims say. Now, the Muslim world's over a billion people. We're Christians. If someone wants to know what I believe, I don't think they should be reading the writings of uh, you know, some religious scholar in London, England. Okay? They ought to come to me because I don't agree with everything that every other Christian religious scholar is going to say. Right? There's diversity within Christianity. I don't think all of us in here agree with everything that the Pope says. But I think that we agree with some of what the Pope says. You can't go to the Pope and say, this is what all Christians believe. By the same token, you can't go to Daman Shuk and say, this is what all Christians believe. Because we might believe a lot of what Daman Shuk says. But there are probably some points where we might differ with him. So it is with the Muslim world. Okay? So what I've done is I've taken what's considered mainline Islam 
and used it for a good bit of these materials. And then a good bit of the materials also, I've just taken from the Quran. Because that's uh, 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 where, you know, that's, that's it. So within the realm of that, that's what I'm trying to use. I've tried to footnote as much as I can in the handouts to make this as accurate as possible. So with that, let's follow now and, and go through and compare for the next 28 minutes Christianity and Islam. Let's start with God. It seems an appropriate starting place. We say God. Some people say Yahweh. You ever said Yahweh? Some people might use, try to use Hebrew words. Um, uh, Adonai is a word that, that uh, a Hebrew might use when they talk about God. Um, the, the, the Islamic world uses Allah. And for a long time in my life, I thought Allah was kind of like a different God, in a sense. Okay. To an Islam, Allah is not a different God. In Arabic which is the Islamic language, God is Allah. Now, you will go to English-speaking Muslims and they'll still use Allah instead of God. The reason why is because they believe the word God is subject to misuse. You can use the word God and say, you know, talk about God. But you can also talk about God's like the gods in the Roman Empire or the gods of Greek mythology, Zeus. And, and the Ara, uh, Arabic uh, language doesn't have any other word that you can use for that. Allah is used in the Islamic language only for the one God. It isn't subject to misuse. It, you can't say Allah awful. And the Arabics are, 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 Muslims are fond of saying you can take the word God and even put God awful. Now, we don't use the word that way, generally, but it certainly gets used that way. And to the Muslim world, the word God is too subject to misuse, so they won't speak of God, they'll use Allah. But Allah literally means God. And so they are talking when they do that, even though that's their preference, they're talking about God. Now, in the Muslim world, as taught in the Quran, God creates the earth. God creates the earth in six days. Quran chapter 7 verse 54. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is between them in six days. Okay. You've got to remember, Muhammad had extensive contact with Jews and Christians before he ever started having his visions and after he had his visions. Now, Muhammad in the Quran does not teach after six days God rested. They believe that after six days God, God never rested because he never got tired. They say this is a shortcoming in the Christian and Jewish theology, the idea that God got so tired he had to rest. Of course, that's not what Christians and Jews believe. Jesus explained that God's rest was not because he was tired, God's rest was for us to show that he had finished his creation and we actually join the rest of God once we finish our time here on earth. So uh, that's another day for another lesson in the book of Hebrews. But in the Quran, in Islam, God creates the world. He creates it in six days. 
But there's a very interesting divergence here. Muhammad never received a vision or never understood or never grasped. He certainly never taught. And it's not in the Quran that man has a fallen nature or a sin nature. It's not there. See, as Christians, we believe that man uh, 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 is, is not the way God made us to be. God made us for so much more than, they, than we are. And, and I don't know about you, but, but I know that there's this nagging inside me that says, there's got to be more to life. There has to be more to life. I've got to be made for more than this. There's a hunger. There's a desire. Augustine said it's like a vacuum sucking to be filled. That's shaped like God. And until God fills it, it's always there. There is something inside of humanity that says there's got to be more to life. That's not the Muslim worldview. The Muslim worldview is that God made man and, and woman. And man and woman, in fact, initially were with God in paradise in heaven. They ate of the tree in heaven, not in the Garden of Eden. And it was after they ate of the tree in heaven that God kicked them out of heaven to earth just to like spend some time on probation. But there wasn't a real fallen nature. You're born here on earth, you're sin free. In the Muslim world, a lot of people have lived sin free. It's just up to you. The Muslim world could never relate to St. Paul writing in Romans about the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Ah, what's going on? What's this struggle? In the Muslim world, you just decide what you want to do and you do it. You've got enough power and, and will and the rules are written so that you can be perfect if you choose. The Christian mentality is very different. In the, Muslim, in, the, in, in, in the Muslim world, they don't believe that man was made in God's image. In the Christian world, we do. We'll get into this some more. So, God creates the world in six days in the Muslim world. And then, God starts sending prophets to earth as His messengers. And the prophets come to earth to give us direction on how we're supposed to live. And the Quran teaches that there, and Islamic faith teaches that there is a long line of prophets. Some of them work within an old revelation that's already there. Some of them bring a new revelation, a new insight from God that gives new direction. The old revelation prophets include people like Noah, you know, he just worked within the framework of what was there. New revelation prophets, though, are people like Abraham who brought out a new aspect of God that was not understood by humanity before. Do you know who else was a new revelation prophet that brought a new revelation of God as a prophet? Jesus. And do you know who the last prophet that there will be who brought a new revelation? Muhammad. And that's the way the Islamic world teaches. Now, here's what I'd like to do. Let's put Christianity, draw a line down our tablet. We'll put Christianity on one side. We'll put Islam on the other. And let's start comparing them. We've got a number of different areas I'd like to go through. I'm starting simple. Okay? I like it simple. I like to know names. I like to know where this stuff comes from. 
I'd like to know what an Islam is and what a Muslim is. And I figure if I'm going to do that for Islam and Muslims, we ought to do that for Christianity too. I didn't know I was going to get help from the preacher this morning. I really appreciate it though. Jesus of Nazareth. Christ was not Jesus' last name. Okay? Jesus, Yehoshua, English, Joshua, Jesus was a man who was born in Nazareth. Because I am a Christian, I believe that Jesus was no ordinary man. I believe Jesus was actually anointed by God. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. The anointed one from God who came to save us. That's what I believe. I believe Jesus was born with an anointing from God as God, as man, and he was born as a savior for the world. He saves me from the condemnation that I deserve because of my sin. He saves me by paying the price and dying the death I should die. That's what I believe. So I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that's why we call him Jesus Christ. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is Messiah. Christ is the Greek word, Christos, that means anointed or means Messiah. So to say Jesus Christ is to say Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is God's anointed to save. That's what Jesus Christ means. So, we've got Jesus Christ. Now, we take it the next step. As the preacher did this morning, he pointed out, Acts eleven twenty six that Christians, or as he was calling them, Christians, that's a way to emphasize the word, nice touch, People who follow Jesus as Messiah, people who recognize Jesus is God's anointed, Jesus is the Savior of mankind, Jesus is the Messiah, those people who believe Jesus is the Christ are Christians or Christians, Acts 11.26. And then the word Christianity as a faith of Christians... Christians, Christians, is first used by Ignatius. Go back to lesson three in our biblical history, church history literacy class. And uh, that's the first, I've got the side in the paper. But uh, that's when Christianity, so Christianity, what does it mean? When to say we're a Christian, it means we're followers who of Christ, of Jesus, believing that Jesus was not a mere man, Jesus was Savior, Messiah. That's a Christian. Fair? Okay, Islam. The key to understanding what Islam means is any Semitic language, whether it's Arabic, Aramaic, Syriac, uh, 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 Hebrew, all of their words are built around three consonant roots. It's bizarre. Makar means to steal. Okay? Um, uh, B-R- CH is one. Baruch means to bless. You get three consonants, and then from those three consonants, they make all sorts of little words, adding different vowel sounds and different other letters and all. Well, here are your three consonants. S. What are the other consonants in Islam? 
L, good, come on. M, okay, that's just like make sure you all remembered English from when you were like kids. Um, those are the three consonants. S, L, M. Anyone want to guess what those consonants mean in Semitic languages? I'll give you a hint. S is also S-H. It's the same letter. S-H-L-M. Shalom. It's the same three consonants. It means peace or it means surrender. All right? Um, Islam is the faith of people who seek peace with God by surrendering to God and doing what God wants them to do. Okay? Now, also, you can take in the Arabic, you can add the letter M to a word, and it makes you someone who does those three consonants. So if you add the letter M, what do you get? Muslim. Muslim means just someone who follows Islam. So that's how the words work together. A Muslim is someone who follows Islam. Islam is trying to find peace through surrendering to God. Okay? Now, those are the names. Next subject. Scriptures. For Christians, our scriptures. It's not hard. We use the Bible. Okay? Um, there's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. If you're Roman Catholic, you've got the Apocrypha. If you want more information on that, you get a Protestant view by going on the website and finding our lessons on the Apocrypha. If you want a Catholic view, get on the Internet, and the Catholic Encyclopedia is available on there, and it gives you a really good explanation from a Catholic perspective. But really, we've got the Old and the New Testament. The Old and the New Testament are divided up into books right? that have been written over hundreds of different years. And it is the Christian conviction that all Scripture is inspired by God. It's God-breathed, the way Paul writes it in Timothy, 2 Timothy. All Scripture has God's breath in it. It's inspired by God. It's useful if you want to teach, if you want to rebuke, if you want to correct, if you want to train people in righteousness. And it's, written, it's there so that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what Scripture's there for. All right. The Muslim or Islamic Scripture is called the Quran. The Quran, as we talked about, are the visions, are the insights that Muhammad got that he told to people that his followers later wrote down into and assembled together into the Quran. It's not put in any kind of a chronological order. It's not divided up into books the way the Bible is. It's actually divided into surahs, which are really chapters. I can't seem to find the difference. But um, you've got surahs that, that uh, there are 114 of them. They're not in any kind of chronological order either. In fact, Islamic scholars argue about which one was written first and which was written last. They seem to be in a general order of biggest to littlest. Um, but that's what you've got in there. And, and to a Muslim, they would never say that the, the Quran was inspired by God. They don't believe it's inspired. They believe it's actually God's direct speech. So that it's really, this is not an accurate Quran because this is in English. God spoke in Arabic. And it's only accurate in Arabic. That's the Islamic view. Most Korans, not this one, will have Arabic on one page 
and, and their translation on the next so that you can at least say you've got a valid Koran even if you can't read it. The, the, the book itself says, chapter 32, I'm sorry, I'm a little bit low. Um, the revelation of the book in which there is no doubt from the Lord of the universe. Let's see, does this, that makes it worse. Um, you got it? Yeah, thanks. Um, the revelation of the book in which there is no doubt from the Lord of the universe. Now, does someone say, hey, maybe Muhammad made this up? says, no, this is the truth from your Lord. This isn't something Muhammad made up. Now, you sit there and you say, okay, Muhammad claims to have a divine revelation from God. Now, Muhammad said the Bible was accurate the way God originally gave it, but it had been corrupted over the centuries by the Jews and the Christians. See, the original Bible, Muhammad would say, was accurate. And a Muslim would say, It'd just been corrupted. And so Muhammad comes with a later revelation, and that later revelation is the direct word from the Lord. The problem I have is there are some huge differences between this book and the Bible. One of the stories that's really fascinating to read, there aren't a lot of stories in, in the Koran, but there are a few. And you can read uh, about uh, uh, Joseph. It's got like the entire Joseph narrative. It's got Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. It's got Joseph uh, and Potiphar. doesn't call him Potiphar, just calls him an Egyptian official. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. Um, and, and the way Muhammad tells the story is very different than the way uh, we get it in Genesis in some ways. Oh, a lot of it's the same. But for example, Potiphar's wife, she grabs Joseph by the shirt and rips off his shirt. Okay. In the Bible, Potiphar comes home and he's furious because he believes his wife that Joseph tried to seduce her, right? And Potiphar throws Joseph in prison. Okay, I'm losing y'all because you're all looking at this. <laughs> there. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Philip. In the Bible, Potiphar believes his wife that Joseph's trying to seduce her and he throws Joseph in prison, right? Okay? All right. In the Koran, no, 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 no. First of all, it looks like Potiphar's wife has got her friends around and they're all Googling or oogling over Joseph. But when Potiphar comes home and the wife has the shirt, the question is, is it torn from the front or the back? If it's torn from the front, then Joseph was coming after her and Joseph should die. But if it's torn from the back, then Joseph is telling the truth. He was running away and she tried to get him. Well, it was torn from the back. So Potiphar's furious at his wife, sees it as all his wife's fault. Ultimately, throws Joseph in prison anyway because he just figures it ought to be done. But he, he's at first, he's real upset with his wife. Now, I sit there and I say, okay. And this is the same issue I have with other religions that try to uh, um, um, take the Bible and, and, and add additional revelation to it. I want to examine it. I just want to do it fairly. Because I want to know which one's right. You know, the Bible, the oldest copy of the Hebrew Old Testament we had, if you were to ask, if we were teaching this class a hundred years ago, dated 1000 A.D. 1000 A.D. 
There were a lot of German scholars that said you can't believe anything that's in the Bible because it's so, you know, it, so many errors. You know, it's, it's so far and we don't have anything close to source material. And then in the 1940s, lo and behold, over in Israel, some kid who's taking care of his sheep's chunking rocks in a cave. That's the kind of thing kids would do. He hears a clank. Oh, there was a clank. He goes into the cave and he busted a jar. And he looks at where the busted jar was and there's like a, there's, there's a parchment in there. There's a scroll. So he takes it and he goes and sees if he can sell it. And he does. But before long, word filters out of where it came from. And the archaeologists descend. And they find these scrolls around the Dead Sea. And they're able to accurately date these scrolls. These scrolls date from before the time of Christ. Some of them as much as 150, 200 years before Christ. Including one that's a scroll of the almost the entire book of Isaiah. Basically, it is the entire book of Isaiah. And you compare that scroll of Isaiah that was written a hundred plus years before Jesus was born to the copies that we were using, the oldest one of which was a thousand years after Christ. And they're 95% identical. About the only changes are you can see where people didn't spell things right or slipped with the pen. That's incredible. You know, and Muhammad didn't have the benefit of this, and a lot of Islamic scholars don't have the benefit of this, but you can go back and you can study and you can find that our Bible, I'd urge you to go back and listen to the biblical literacy lessons we did for three years in this class. Our Bible is not something that's just accidentally there. It is an incredible book that was put together over thousands of years. If it doesn't have the hand of God on it, then I'm, I, I have no concept of what God's hand would be. And it's not just me, but that's been the perception of Christians. When the Jewish scholars were transcribing, they were called Masoretic scholars, when they were transcribing Hebrew, because they didn't have good Xerox machines back at the time of Christ, okay, they were really bad. So they'd have to sit there and transcribe it. They would take a column of text and they would write it down and then they would count the number of letters, to make sure they had the exact number of letters. And then they would go down and scan the first row and make sure the first letter was the same letter all the way down. Then they would count to the middle letter and make sure the middle letter was right. And then they would have proofreaders. This for every copy ever made. I mean, this was, as Josephus wrote, he was a Jewish historian in the first hundred years of, of our century, of, of the era since Christ. As Josephus wrote, this, this, is the very word of God, and we're not going to leave one dot off of one eye because it would be sacrilege. We've got, you can go to the, John, to the British Museum and see the John Rylands fragment right here. That's John 18, 31 through 33. That is datable within 25 years of John writing his gospel. And it's letter for letter for letter. Christian scripture has the most powerful scientific minds that can stand behind it. And I'm sorry if I've got to put my faith in something as being the right account. I'm going to put it in that. 
I'm not going to put it in the writings that were put together based upon memory of what the prophet said he heard in a cave in a vision. I'm not going to do it. But that's me. Conversion. Let's talk about the differences here. I'm going too slow. In Christianity, God creates man to be in fellowship with God. After God creates man, man sins. Man, if man's made to be in fellowship with God, if this, if this is the best way I know to illustrate it, it's an old Fento illustration. Here are two pins. This is Adam and this is Eve. Adam and Eve are in fellowship with God. They're made in God's image. They're made to be like God. Not in power, not in, in strength, not in ruling, but in terms of what's right and what's wrong, love, ethics, the, the fellowship. They're made to be in fellowship with God. But when they sin and they do something God cannot do, they cannot be with God. And they fall. And that's the fall of man. And that's what the Bible teaches. And down here, man is... It can't, can't ever, he, that pen can do all the good works in the world. It's never going to get itself perfect again to be back in the hand of God. It's got to die. And anything to be perfect has to be born again to be in God. And that's the biblical teaching. So man falls from God in the Bible and Jesus says, I'll take the death that you're supposed to die because of Jesus' perfection, God raises him again. And through our faith in that, we have a resurrected life in Jesus. That's the Christian perspective. Now, if you put the Christian perspective up there, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's the Christian perspective. From Islam, the Koran says Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. They accept that. But there's no atoning sacrifice. They don't even think Jesus was the one who ultimately died on the cross. This is Muhammad was influenced by the Christian heretics that had been kicked out of the church. He doesn't believe it was Jesus that was crucified. The Quran says it wasn't Jesus that was crucified. There's no sacrifice that needs to atone for sins. Because in the Islam sense, let me put this up, that's how you go to heaven. You don't have to have your sins atoned for. You just got to have enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds. As it says in the Quran, one day every soul will come and debate about itself. Weigh its good and its bad. And each soul will be paid in full for what it did. So you want to be a, mis- a Muslim, the way to, to uh, be, be uh, uh, converted is to simply make this same statement of, uh, this statement of faith I've got up here. State, there is no God but God. And Muhammad is the messenger of God. Well, I could go with half of that. But Muhammad's not the messenger of God because he didn't teach about Jesus, the atoning sacrifice, the gospel, from a Christian perspective. So that's the difference. Now let's talk about church real quick. Okay, I'm getting close. I'll go through these a little quicker. Christianity, church, as our speaker said this morning, church isn't really what we're doing here. Church is who we are. Church is, in the Christian faith, the people not the building. But having said that, when we talk about church, Islam, by the way, doesn't really have church in the sense that we have it. They have a mosque where you go to pray, but it's not the family of God the way we are. That We're related. If you know Jesus Christ, you are my sister and my brother. Period. And heaven help me if I don't treat you that way. 
We come together, we sing, and we worship. Muslims don't do that. We come together, we read scripture. Muslims do do that. That's part of their prayer ritual. They read their Quran. We come together, we give offerings. Well, they do that too. They have their charity, mandatory charity. Uh, we come together, we take communion. They don't have any type of a communion. There is no, they don't recognize that Jesus was Messiah in the sense that we do. And if he didn't have an atoning sacrifice, why on earth would he say, hey, partake of who I am? If you're good on your own, you don't need Jesus in your life. If Jesus is nothing more than a traffic cop saying, turn left, then yeah, I guess he's just one in a long line of traffic cops. But that's not the Christian belief. We pray, so do they. Oh, do they pray. It's a very ritualistic prayer that they have, but they pray five times a day. Um, before they pray, they have to wash to be clean. See, now we pray, we pray through Jesus. Can't get any cleaner than that, can you? And we don't have the ritual washing because we are whiter than snow on our clothing. We are, we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. They don't have that. They have to do a ritual washing. Then they raise their hands and they start with Allahu Akbar, which means God is great. And as they, that's, they're declaring their intent to pray. And then they've got a prayer mat to keep them off of the dirt and off of the ground. They face towards Mecca. You go into a, a mosque, they'll have some arch or something in the wall that's directed toward Mecca so you know which way to bow to pray. And then they recite the Koran, they kneel, they do this five times a day. Righteous living. In a nutshell, it boils down to this. Uh, And I've given you a bunch of the do's and don'ts. You know, they circumcise their boys. uh, No alcohol, no gambling. Um, You're supposed to be honest. You're not supposed to lie. On and on and on. Um, I haven't talked about holy jihads and when you're allowed to kill. Not because there's a huge divergence of opinion in that within the Muslim world. There are a lot of Muslims that do not believe you should ever take anyone's life or be aggressive unless you've been attacked and you're defending yourself and your faith. Then there are others who believe you're defending your faith when you attack unholy people. So there's that. But righteous living boils down to this. Christianity, we do because we love. We do because we love. And why do we love? Because He first loved us and gave His life for us. That's our motivation. Heaven, help us in this world. The only thing I'd add as a footnote to what the gentleman said this morning, which was a very powerful and great sermon, I really enjoyed it, is we've got to start showing the world our love, the love of Jesus. The world views Christians, a lot of the world views Christians, as harsh, bitter, judgmental people. And heaven, help us, because that's not what we are. That's what we fled from. We're people of the heart of God. God so loved the world that He gave. Now, Islam, their list, that's my checklist. They do because it's required. And when they put it in the scales, they want to come out the winner. So here are your points for home. I'm going to tell you what Paul told Timothy. Do your best. To present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who doesn't need to be ashamed and who handles correctly the word of truth. We study the Bible. We study church history and put the Bible into it for a reason. 
We don't want the heretical ideas that cause heresy to thrive. We want to rightly handle God's word. We want to study it. We want to understand what it is. And where we're right, we want to hold on to it. And where we're wrong, we want to change. And we don't need to be afraid to study it. And we don't need to be afraid to examine other religions. And we don't need to be afraid what anybody says about it. Because God is behind what we have as truth. And we will figure it out by the work of His Holy Spirit in us. That's the confidence we have. Second point. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel which I preached to you, which you've received, on which you've taken your stand. This is the good news, the gospel by which you're saved if you believe. It's very simple. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And as Paul says, if anybody, even if he is an angel from heaven, should ever tell you any kind of good news other than the fact that Jesus Christ died for your sins and was resurrected to a new life and you have that by faith in Him. If anybody, me, someone in the pulpit, an angel Gabriel, or a demon Satan, if anybody tells you anything else is the basis for you coming before God, Paul curses him and declares he should be condemned to hell. Because that's the gospel truth. Okay. We're done. I want to do two things. I want to pray. Before I pray, Lewis is right here. Stand up, Lewis. Dale Hearn, where are you? Dale Hearn's right there. Give me some more people. Wouldn't stand up. Okay, give me someone over here. Kathleen. These are people who know Jesus. If you've got any questions at all, maybe you're in here visiting. When class is over, find one of these people. Find me. I'll stand up here too. We would love to tell you about Jesus because Jesus isn't a harsh, judgmental, critical man. Jesus is God himself made flesh who loves you so much he would die for your sins. And if he doesn't die for your sins, then you will. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your love. And we do approach you totally clean in Jesus Christ and confess that we're not good enough on our own. And Father, I pray for the Muslim world. I pray that you would, would give us opportunities to minister to them and show them your love. I pray that you would convict them of their sin, that there's not a Muslim, there's not a, an atheist, there's not a, a Christian, there's not a human being alive who can live perfectly. There's not a soul that doesn't need your grace. And it is my prayer that you would convict, convict many, many, many people of that. Anybody in our midst who doesn't understand that, Lord, move in their heart to find the love and the satisfaction and the peace that comes from knowing our place in the universe and knowing our place before you and knowing our eternity. We love you. We confess our sin, but we confess the righteousness in Jesus and we pray for the day that you purify us more so, so the world sees the love that you have through the way we treat them. Amen. Thank you all.